Welcome once again to our weekly podcast, Bump, Birth and Beyond, hosted by me, Dr. Joseph Scroyan, proudly brought to you by Tiny Hearts Education. On today's episode, we're joined uh, by uh, Josie Tegris, who's, shared, who's going to share her, her incredible journey, really, about fertility and the birth of her two daughters, Zara and Sienna. Um, welcome. Hi. So... It's interesting. We're going to talk a little bit. This is going to be a nice topic because we're going to talk about not only just the birth and the, having the babies as well, but of course, and having twins, which can be a bit of a, a, a shock to the system for a couple. Uh, but in addition to that, also just talk about how you got there. Mm-hmm. So do you want to tell us a little bit about your journey to becoming pregnant? So what sort of, when did you want to become a mum? You know, how, how did you, how did that all, that process all go? Uh, well, I can, I can tell you that I've always wanted to be a mum and I've always had that motherly instinct in me. Um, I just never felt, found the right partner to have children with. So once I reached about 36 years of age, um, I met my now husband and from there, we talked about the things we wanted and needed for our lives and we sort of did everything back to front, moved in together and then thought let's have children because of our age and then maybe perhaps get married later on after that. Um, so at 36 years of age, I thought I'd better go to the doctors, well, my gynecologist, and sort of see where my hormonal levels are at considering I'm 36, so I've always suffered from endometriosis. And so what, just take us a little bit of back because you say you were suffered from endometriosis. Had What were the sort of things that you knew that were endometriosis like? Oh, so with my endometriosis, I, um, I suffered very, very bad, painful periods. Right. Um, there were times where it was extremely heavy. Um, there were times where it wouldn't come. And during intercourse, that was one big thing. Oh, like painful. it was very, very painful. And had you had you'd seen gynecologists before for yes, that? Yes, yes, 100%. So in that time, I think from the age of 21, I was diagnosed with um, endo. And from 31 to the age of 36, I think I've had about 12 laparoscopies wow, all up. Yeah. And um, each time they found endo. Yep. Yeah. So, and was, why were you having endometriosis? What type of? Th- I mean, not, we're not talking about endometriosis too much, and mm-hmm. I'm going to be doing a podcast series soon, actually, all about endometriosis. But mm-hmm. it seems a lot of a lot of laparoscopies between 21 and 36. Um, were you having any hormonal treatment to try to dampen down the endo? Yes. So, um, I was put on the pill. Yeah. To try and sort of help me regulate, to sort of help with my pains and right. things like that. But yeah, nothing seemed to help. Like, did you have a lot of endo on the ovaries? No, I didn't have it on the ovaries. I used to have it everywhere around the uterus, and it also apparently was around my bowel area. Right. So yeah, that's I, why you were getting a lot of pain. Yeah. So you had a suspicion that it might be difficult to become pregnant on the basis of the endo or you just were thinking, I'm 36, I've met the right man. Uh, had you ever contemplated becoming pregnant as a single woman? Yes, I did. Right. And, <laughs> and so that was before you met your husband? 100%, yeah. And and how long be, be the decision between thinking, oh, well, I'll just do this on my own compared to then saying, oh, well, I found the right man now? Um, I probably, well, like I said previously, I've always wanted to be a mum. Um, yeah. and I think I said by the time I was 30, if I haven't met someone, I'm probably going to go out there and just do it myself. Yeah. Um, what and, did that mean? 
well, that just meant me probably finding a sperm donor. Right, okay. Um, doing it the right way, of yeah. Course, yeah. Um, and, yeah, then, you know, I probably at that time met someone else and then yeah. that failed. Um, so you met the guy, a guy at 30 and thought yeah, he, he was yep. the one. thought he was the one. And then, you know, after a few years of dating, um, getting engaged, I sort of thought this isn't what I want in my life um, yeah. and I'm probably not going to get what I actually want out of out of this life. So I sort of ended it and then I was single again. Yeah. But then within six months after, you know, sort of mourning the situation a bit, um, I met my now husband, Gary. Cool. Had there ever been a thought in your mind perhaps, I mean, it's probably a while, not not so long ago, but <clears throat> had you ever thought about freezing eggs at that point? Had anyone talked no, about that? No, I didn't <laughs> think of any of that. No and what, what's worse is at the age of 26, I was also diagnosed with lupus. Right. So had I have been told that my autoimmune condition could also affect my ovaries and things like that, I probably would have done that. Yeah. But no one ever sort of, sort of yeah, told me about that. Well, I mean, look, you know, you, you're not regretting anything because you've got Zara and Sienna now, so yeah. it doesn't really, in, you know, in hindsight, would have been a good thing. But now, obviously, it probably makes no difference. Mm. So at 36, was there any suggestion in your mind you had any concern? I mean, obviously, apart from the endometriosis, any concerns, you've met your husband, any concerns that you thought, well, I'm not, we're not going to get pregnant, we should be easily able to get pregnant? None whatsoever. So what happened in that first appointment then with the gynecologist? So I literally went to the gynecologist and um, he was like, Josie, are you here? Do you have endo? Or And I was like, yeah. no, I'm here to get some tests. I just want to know where I'm at hormonally. I've um, met, met someone and, you know, we're on the same page. We want the same things in life. And we are thinking now because of our age, it's probably wise to look into you know, our fertility and make sure that we're able to start so, making a family. And, um, yeah, so he just was, like, really happy and, yep, here's, here's what you have to do. Just go get a blood test and I'll ring you to make an appointment when the results come in. So, so I often say to couples that, who come and see me, I think it's good that you did that because I think particularly if you're over, over the age of 35 and you're contemplating pregnancy and there's a, something that may prevent you from becoming pregnant, such as endo, or in your case, having had so many surgeries and I suppose lupus as well, mm-hmm. that you shouldn't really delay. We should check out and make sure that everything's okay. And, th- and there's no harm in actually seeing an obstetrician slash gynecologist preemptively <laughs> before you're planning or before you're pregnant because I think sometimes it gives you an opportunity to est- establish a rapport with someone who may go on and be able to look after you in the long term. Yeah. I always talk to couples about six things you need in order to get pregnant, sex, sperm, a receptive uterus, open tubes, ovulation and patience. And part of that workup or that initial consult is looking at all those six things. Mm-hmm. Patience, of course, is you guys just being patient, um, but also doing a hormonal profile. So You'd obviously had a couple of investigations. What was the conclusion when you came back for that uh, after that first appointment? Oh wow! I I remember um, my gynecologist ringing me up and saying I got your results, and I still at this point I walked in there oblivious, and I brought my mum with me, and I remember him just straight out saying to me, "You won't be able to have children," and. 
I was flabbergasted. Like, mm. I don't know whether it was because I had been seeing this gynecologist for so many years and maybe he had a rapport with me where he could maybe perhaps just blurt that out. But um, the bedside manner wasn't the greatest. Mm. And I remember hearing those words yeah. and I went numb. Yeah. I just, I didn't hear the rest of the conversation. Thank God I had my mum there. Yeah. Um, and she did, she asked all the questions and she, did what she had to do to find out what yeah. was going on. And in a nutshell, I was apparently going through early menopause. Right. So what made the doctor think that and what sort of symptoms did you have that you that sort of correlated with what the doctor was saying? I had no symptoms at the time. Right. So I was getting a period as per normal. I yeah. went off the pill like he asked me to in that interim before yeah. I had the blood test. Um, so to me, I had no indication whatsoever. Um, but his results um, from the blood test indicated that I had a very low ovarian reserve. Right. And, yeah, I was approaching menopause early. And was that based on any other tests? I mean, obviously an ovarian reserve count being low is not necessarily your menopausal. Mm -hmm. What made your doctor think you were menopausal at that stage? I think he said because um, the result, the ovarian reserve was so low that I didn't have any I, I didn't have any eggs left, pretty much. Did you continue to have periods after that point? 100%. Right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I'm not privy to all the investigations you got, but premature menopause, just for people out there, is where a woman will experience menopause a lot earlier than what we normally would expect. And, you know, you know if it's below 40, that's young, yeah, like you were. How we diagnose menopause is when we have a high level of something called FSH or follicle-stimulating hormone that's circulating in the body. The, best, the way I like to describe follicle-stimulating hormone is imagine it's fertiliser. The fertiliser will go down to the ovary and fertilise the ovary to produce an egg. Now, if there's an egg being produced, it's analogous to, let's say, having a, a seedling, a little sunflower seedling sitting in a flower box. If you've got fertiliser and you fertilise this little sunflower, as the sunflower starts blooming, you're not going to fertilise it as much, mm -hmm. right? If the box is complete, you can't see anything, there's no sunflower poking its head out of the soil, you're going to continue putting fertiliser onto the soil, right? That's exactly the same as what happens in the brain. The follicle-stimulating hormone goes really, really high and continues to go high because the ovaries aren't producing any eggs, so that's one of the questions I wanted to ask is, was that follicle-stimulating hormone high at that point? To be honest, I'm not 100% sure. sure. Like I said, I was, I was numb yeah, to everything okay. that was said to me. Because having an ovary, a low ovarian reserve, and I'm obviously, you're right, the rapport probably wasn't great, but a lot of women will come and see me because I also do fertility, mm -hmm. and they'll ask me, oh, they'll, they'll say my ovarian reserve is very low on this AMH test. One of the things about having a low AMH is it doesn't mean you can't get pregnant. Um, a low ovarian reserve is not an indication of your ability to conceive. It does change what we can do in terms of being able to collect eggs if we were doing IVF, how many eggs we can conceive. But at the end of the day, a woman only needs to release one egg a month That's right. for that to fertilise, for that then to become pregnant. So you can, using that same analogy with the flower box, you can plant 30, 30 seedlings and have a huge ovarian reserve or you can plant one. doesn't matter because every month only one egg's coming out because in humans we only want one baby. 
So you were told this news based on a low ovarian reserve. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, your mum was there. What did mum relay back to you? Um, so she relayed, obviously, about my ovarian reserve being low. Yeah. Um, then she was telling me that I will soon be approaching me- early menopause. Um, even though I don't have the symptoms now, I will be um, possibly getting the symptoms sooner rather than later. And um, the other thing is he stated to me, well, to my mum and myself, that fertility-wise it would probably be best to look into using perhaps my sister's eggs or something like that if I wanted to but you were, still, you were still having periods at this stage? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. So. so was this a gynecologist who did IVF as well? No. No. Okay. So did you get referred on to an IVF doctor? No. Not at that stage? No. Right. Did you go through menopause? No. Right. Have you no. gone through menopause? I'm going through it now. Right. Okay. <laughs> so I, I think that's an important comment because a lot of women, as I said, will come with a low ovarian reserve, get told this information from someone who doesn't do fertility and maybe be misguided about what their ability to conceive naturally is because mm-hmm. there's every chance, you know, I'm not saying you could have because we may have gone down another path, which we'll talk about in a minute, but just purely on the basis of releasing one egg a month, you, there is every possibility women out there with a low ovarian reserve can achieve pregnancy. So... Um, And I think that's important. So in the absence of any other concern, you know, sex is okay, sperm's good, the uterus is structurally normal, the tubes are open, the ovaries are working well, there's nothing like an autoimmune condition or anything like that that potentially may impair pregnancy, that in actual fact you can achieve pregnancy. So where did you go to from there? So So get this news. Yeah, I was devastated. So I obviously needed to speak to my partner because obviously coming from um, European backgrounds, we're very big on family and, um, you know, we felt having a family of our own would, you know, complete us and things like that. So obviously I went back home and talked to um, Gary about it and I remember him, uh, I don't think he as a man really understood the gist of it. So. He was like, it's okay, we're, we're going to be parents. And I think him saying that probably agitated me a bit more because sure. it, whilst he's trying to be optimistic about it, it was still um, something that was devastating. And being told what I was told, it was just I felt like everything was over for me, you know. Yeah. Um, but from there, his optimism um sort of kept me going and obviously in that time I I think it was probably maybe about a couple of weeks or three weeks or something like that and I remember um, being home from work I had a lupus flare-up so between being fatigued and sore joints and things like that I was just laying on the couch watching your morning shows and then all of a sudden Sonia Kruger has come out to the world about being pregnant you know, with um, a fertility specialist um, and it's via an egg donor, you know, from her friend. And as I was watching this and got so engrossed in it, like my phone rang and it was my mum. She must have been watching the same episode. She's like, did you hear that? You know, there's hope. You can do things. If you if you really want to be a mum, you you really can. And, and God bless my mum. She's my biggest 
advocate. She she just, you know, pushed through with everything and left no stone unturned when it came to me becoming a mum. And she said, we are going to ring this doctor and we're going to get an appointment. Mm. So I um, rang up Lynn Burmeister, mm-hmm. who um, helped Sonia. And it I don't know whether it was a godsend, what have you, but Wow, she was able to see me in a couple of days because prior to me ringing, someone had just cancelled mm. an appointment. It's fated. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and my mum, you know, is like, it's meant to be. Yeah. And, and I think it made me a bit more optimistic. Of course. Again, I went to this appointment open-minded thinking, I don't know what that gynecologist was talking about. I don't think he has any idea what's going on. Yeah. And I'm now seeing a fertility specialist. She's going to she's gonna know that I'm okay. Yeah. And, yeah. So you went and saw Dr. Lynn and tell me that first appointment, obviously you're fortunate, got in a couple of days. Yeah. Tell us what, the, I mean, obviously you would have told her the story and recount. Your mum came to the appointment? Yeah. yeah. Did Gary go? No, he was working. Right. No, he was working. So uh, mum and yourself went along and seen Dr Lee. Tell me what, uh, after what you'd been told, then telling her the history, what sort of advice or what further tests and or investigations were ordered? Okay, so I literally asked the gynaecologist for all my tests. Yeah. I, um, I got everything from my endometriosis to my laparoscopies to yeah. the current blood tests that I'd got. Um, and I went to see Lynn, sat with her, and she's a very, very honest, um, honest woman. And she just read through my reports and I let her do that silently so she could soak it all in. And she pretty much said to me, yeah, Josie, you're not going to have um, a lot of luck if we do IVF or any fertility treatments with you. Um, But if you really want to become a mum, there is another option and you can do egg donate. You can, you know, get an egg donor um, and go down that avenue. And whilst I was contemplating that because I'd seen that episode with Sonia, um, I didn't know how my husband, well, my now husband, would think about would think about that. So she went through everything with me, like you know, the laws in Australia, what you can and can't do, the World Egg Bank scenario, um, going to South Africa, going to um, Greece, and getting an anonymous donor, and it's something that I really soaked in mm. from her. Um, where I was able to go home, articulate everything to my husband, lay it down on the, you know, put the cards on the table, this is what our options are. Yeah. And thankfully he said, let's do it. Yeah. Like. So was there any suggestion of trying with your own eggs or not no, at that point? No, no. You didn't want point. to? She pretty much, uh, Lynn pretty much had said to me there would be no point. Yeah. So So, I'm not going to put you through all of this. Um, It's not fair on you. It's not fair on your body Um, and the emotional impact as well. So she she was very vigilant in the sense of I want to protect you. Emotionally. Yeah, emotionally with what you're going through, especially you being told what you've been told and now me, you know, confirming it. I always say to women that 
I mean, the whole process of fertility, regardless of whether you're doing it with your own eggs or or doing it with donor sperm or donor eggs, is both emotionally, physically and financially taxing. And each one of those will have different taxes, yeah? So financial is easy. You've got a certain number, you know, I guess a certain dollar amount that you can afford to spend. And as soon as that money runs out, you're taxed, yeah? But emotional and physical, you think you got it in the tank. You think you got it in the tank, but at some point, everything sort of collapses emotionally. Sure and fi- and physically or medically speaking, you know that you hopeful. Hopefully, your fertility specialist is guiding you. There are, I mean, obviously, you were provided with the advice that I think was appropriate. But I think that if there are some women out there who might be having the same sort of thing in terms of premature ovarian failure, and it's nice for them to know that if they don't want to use donor eggs, if you do have a patient fertility specialists there's stuff that we can try to do it's very low risk so i think it's important to talk about premature ovarian failure in the context of number one the fact that you've got this high amount of fertilizer hormone but number two there's still you know around about a four percent chance of pregnancy over your lifetime that's very low isn't it Mm -hmm. because if you're looking at every single year that's nothing 0.1 percent a month or something ridiculous but you can still get pregnant. Sometimes what we can do is something called estrogen priming where we give an estrogen tablet to drop the FSH level. So it's a bit like telling the, telling the fertiliser or telling the brain that the, the ovary is actually producing estrogen so that the FSH drops. I liken it to, if you've got a low ovarian reserve, I liken that to a fireplace. If you've got a fireplace and you've got a big roaring fire, your ovarian reserve is very high. So if I go put on a massive log on the fire, the fire will start growing, right? So the log is like that FSH. If you have a small little fire and you've got a huge amount of FSH, a massive log, and you put that on the small fire, it'll snuff snuff the oxygen out. So what we do when we do this thing called estrogen priming is we give some estrogen tablets that tricks the brain into thinking that the ovaries are producing eggs. And what that does is drop the FSH. And in a way, it's a bit like adding kindling to the fire rather than a log. So you put a bit of kindling on, the fire starts to grow just a little bit. It's, it's, it is emotionally a hard journey. And you're right, Lynn was right to say to you, you know what, this will, would have been the, the path of the path to get you to pregnancy sooner and more rewarding is definitely donor eggs. But for some women who are listening to this and thinking, well, you know what, that's not for me, there is an alternative, but it can take months. Mm-hmm. I have, I've had, fortunately in my career as a fertility specialist, you know, and, and I'm quite young out, I've only been out for six years, but I've had about three or four patients and I've had three patients with premature ovarian failure who've been able to get pregnant. But it has taken a long time. And equally so, I've had, you know, another 10 that where we've gone down the path of donor eggs and they're equally pregnant, right? Yeah. So you were told about donor eggs and mm-hmm. the options, I think you've already talked about, number one is mum, uh, sorry, your sister. Mm-hmm. We talked about South Africa and Greece. Mm-hmm. And there was a whole range. I mean, obviously nowadays we can find, uh, you know, the World Egg Bank we can bring eggs into Melbourne as well. What did you decide to do? Well, I went home again and sort of discussed things with hubby um, and together we made an appointment with Lynn so we could sort of um, all sort of come to a decision. Navigate that that, process. Yeah, and what was going to be best for myself. Yeah. Um, And through the process, um, 
Gary and I decided to go to Greece in Athens purely because the process over there is anonymous egg donor. So whilst, you know, I don't know a lot about the donor, um, I do know what I need to know about her. Um, and, and I think we'll, we'll clarify that distinction because I think Lynn did that nicely for you, but we think it's nice for the, the audience to listen. But here in Australia, obviously, egg donation, for a woman to donate eggs here in Australia, it's kept in a central database. So here in Victoria, it's kept by uh, VARTA, which is the controlling body of all assisted reproductive um, technologies here in the state of Victoria, such that a point that it, when a child reaches a certain age, they can gain access to some non-identifying information about the donor, which may help them in the future in terms of any genetic predisposition to something. Um, it also means that the donors here in Australia are counselled, so we know that they've gone through a rigorous counselling process. And all IVF clinics, um, whether it being number one now with Lynn or Melbourne IVF where I work with, will have donor programs where the donors are recruited. And in actual fact, I am part of the, the group of two doctors that looks after the donors through Melbourne IVF. And then we've also got the access to the World Egg Bank, the same sort of thing. The donors, even though the eggs are coming in from overseas, the donors have gone through counselling process and have their names registered on this registry. But some women do choose that exact same thing that you decided, which was if we go overseas and we go to Greece, yes, it's anonymous in the context that we'll never know specifically who that person is, but we've got the demographics and we've got the information. We've had the genetic screening done on the donor and there's, a, a, a in a way, a, a, a sort of a, a partition between and what did, how would you describe it, actually? What was the what was the difference? You said you wanted an anonymous donor. What what did that mean to you? Rather than me explain it, what did you what did you think it meant um, to you? At the time, I I think it was it meant more that meaning when I heard anonymous donor, um, like you said, you know, I have the information that I need, but along the way, once the girls hit a certain age, they you know, won't know who she is or what have you. Um, and I think when I when it was told to me that you could use your sister's eggs or you can ask a best friend or things like that, I just felt like for me it was too close for comfort mm. and I, I sort of felt that uncomfortable feeling like even though I'm carrying the babies, um, I'm not 100% sure whether my best friend or my sister will feel towards the children once I have them. Do you get what I mean? Yeah. So it it was a really big part playing on me. It is. And I think every woman has a different experience. And, you know, I've been fortunate to be involved with a hell of a lot of different donor programs, the donor couple relationships. And I actually recall one that's, I've actually, there's two that I can recall that are quite nice. And one is a, a woman who has made herself known publicly, so Jodie, and if she's listening to this, you know who she is, but she used to go backwards and forwards between, um, I know, Bernie, I think, Bernie and Melbourne, who was it? She was a cook on a ship, on the Bramble ship, and she met a friend over in Bernie. Uh, I hope it's Bernie, and I'm sorry for, to the donor if she doesn't live in Bernie. <laughs> uh, but they became good mates, yeah. and it wasn't through her discussion about the fact that she was having troubles with her own fertility, that's Jody. that is, that the donor said, well, well, I'm happy for you to use my eggs. And there's no doubt that that strengthened the bond between the two of them. 
and that Jodie would consider herself the mum of the children and there's no way that the donor would be consi- would consider herself as a mum. Mm-hmm. And another really good uh, experience that I had of a known donor was a sisters, two sisters. One sister lives in the UK and the other sister, who's Australian but lives in the UK and her other sister lives here and her sister donated her eggs, the Victorian sister donated her eggs to the sister in the UK but that, obviously they did treatment through me here in Melbourne and it's a wonderful sort of harmonious relationship. But you've got to feel comfortable about it, don't you? That's right, yeah. yeah. It was it was a really big thing, especially um, with me, I'm quite open and I'm um, I'm happy to talk about my journey and things like that. But with my husband, he's a lot more of a private person. Yeah. So to even think about using a friend's eggs or my sister's eggs yeah. or things like that, it just wasn't something that, you know, he was comfortable with or no, wanting to do. Yeah. So you decided to go to Greece for this, for the for the anonymity and also maybe ethnicity as well to a mm-hmm. certain degree. Yeah. So do you want to tell us which clinic you went to in, in Greece? Yep. So Lynn Burmeister put me on to um, Dr. Stephanos Serkos, um, who works through Genesis. Yep. Um, and I think he works also privately through another few clinics. Um, so I pretty much emailed him and, you know, over email, had conversations with him about where I was at, what I was doing. I sent him some tests, um, test results. And through that, he was able to say to me, you know, you are a great candidate for um, the anonymous egg donor program. Um, You know, if you're wishing to proceed, then, you know, this is what we need to do and gave me all the details. And pretty much from there, hubby and I, decided, you know what, let's make a European holiday out of this. Let's go visit your family in Cyprus. Um, and the last leg of the holiday, let's go do what we need to do um, in Athens. Yes. Yeah. I've actually visited Genesis. Oh, have you? Yeah. <laughs> it's also where uh, Mary Custis had a baby. Yes, Effie. yes. And if you go there, if anyone does go there, so I send some of my patients there as well to do donor eggs. Um, you'll see posters of her there. It's it is a behemoth of a place. Would that be oh. a nice way of saying? Although I suspect it's European. Yes, um, that's probably the best way. And it, it's very different to what you would expect the medical system, of course, here in Australia. Hundred percent. Um, I think we walked in there and we looked at each other and I'm not even going to say the words that we said to each other, but we were like, what the? <laughs> and what are we doing? Like it was at the point where we were like, oh, my goodness, I I don't know. I don't know what's what's going to happen here. Like yeah. we I, sort of. I think we need to we need to stress it. It, it, it is uh, they're really nice, and and Europeans, whether it's an Italian, Greek, or Cypriot, or whatever the case might be, have a different way of communicating things with people, and also different. I mean, it's like in Italy, there's no such thing as a line. People just yeah. jump in front of one another. Here in Australia, we're so polite, and someone pushes in, we we growl at them. Whereas yeah. there, it's like a free for all. And I felt the same when I walked into because I went to visit Dr. Pantos, who also yes. works at uh, yes. Genesis. And I, and I, you know, if I, if a, if a doctor had approached my secretary here, at my rooms, and said, "Hey, listen, I'm here to see Joe," my secretary would be like, "Okay, Joe, there's a doctor here." And I'd see the doctor straight away. But this secretary, I went up and I said to the secretary, "I'm here to see Dr. Pantos," and I might as well have said, and I said, "I'll, you know, I'd prearrange this," and I'd. 
But it was it was just a very European thing. You know, everything will be done in our time. It's all right. Don't worry. So I think if you go to Greece, be expecting of the fact that it's a different world. I think it's a bit different now, though, because, well, let me just tell you a bit more. So once I went to the reception, yes. really funny, and we were overwhelmed. Yeah. It, honestly, it looked like there were people Everywhere, in a meat market. Yeah. Like No, I think it is the same. I only went, to, uh, when was it, a year and a half, no, maybe two years ago. Yeah. I think the difference is now they've got a numbering system. Well, there was no numbering system <laughs> when I was there. But I did approach the front desk and I did speak to um, the receptionist did there. You go, did you, I mean, I don't, excuse my ignorance, yeah. but did your husband speak Greek? Or Paul? Well, he's, a dialect. He, yeah, he speaks Cyprian, yeah. but... Um, he does understand Greek and can yeah, speak it, yeah. but it didn't matter it to them. It didn't make a difference. Yeah, they sort of. You um, go and get lost. Yeah, they still look <laughs> at you up and down and like try and figure out, you know, yeah, what's yeah. going on with you. Yeah. Um, so we went to the desk and I said, I'm here to see um, Dr. Stephanos Serkos. Um, and she said, Oh, well, you need to get your blood test done. Right. I told her my name and. And, and I said, okay. And she said, but don't worry because you're his patient. You don't need to wait in the line with everyone else. Just go through. Right. So <laughs> we went through and did what we had to do. Within five minutes I had had my blood tests. Yeah. Um, and then they said to me, you just need to go in the lifts up to the second floor and um, Dr. Serkos is waiting for you. So we um, literally didn't deal with any of okay. of the chaos that yeah. was going on there. Um, went up to see Dr. Serkos and that's when um, he explained a bit more about the process um, and he sort of told my hubby that right then and there we are going to do, um, you know, he was going to have to leave some sperm and, yeah. So you had you already been on estrogen tablets at this point? <gasps> yes, I should have said that. So he had already put me on... Um, medication yes. prior to going, which Lynn would, um, I'd ring her up and say, Dr. Serkos said to take this and she would, manage it. you know, manage it. And yeah, I was on all the medication prior. Um, so it's it, important for people to know when you're heading overseas, obviously very difficult to time specifically when the embryo needs to go in. And of course, what they plan to do is have the eggs from the donor either defrosted or alternatively collected. They inseminate them then with the male sperm and at a 0.5 days later they'll <coughs> put the embryo back into the woman's, uh, in, uh, in woman's womb So, or the, the woman who's, who's, who's gladly accepting the donation. So what needs to happen is that the uterus needs to be prepared with oestrogen to thicken up the lining of the womb. I, I describe that as sort of the grass growing on the surface of the MCG waiting for an embryo, which is like a beach ball to nestle into the grass. So you need the oestrogen to thicken up the lining of the grass or the lining of the womb. And then at a point time specifically to when the embryo is being created, the woman will commence progesterone to change the lining of the womb to make it receptive to the embryo so that the embryo can be implanted into the womb. So you will have commenced progesterone at the, at the point in time that the sperm would have been um, produced and then the embryo would have been created and then five days later you've got the embryo transfer. So did you do one or two embryos? We put in two. To, well, yeah. we got three embryos that were perfect yeah. um, and we decided to put two in at once purely because 
it wasn't something for us to continuously be going back to Greece to try if it didn't work. So um, we thought we'll maximise our chances and see see what happens. And, yeah, we put two embryos in and at once. did they take? Both of them. Perfect. Within seven days. So I, I, I have a bit of a different philosophy, and it is difficult because, of course, when you're flying overseas, the cost and the expense of flying overseas, you've got to factor in the fact that, you know, obviously there's not only the flights but also the accommodation, but, and you've got two beautiful girls, so that's fortunate. But we know as obstetricians that, you know, it is a, it's sort of like a twin pregnancy has got its own concerns, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, and that, that in actual fact, Australia probably leads the way in only doing single embryo transfers, mm-hmm. partly because of the reason that we know the impacts that twin births have, in particular in relation to the small risk of having twins early um, and the risk that that might have to the babies and also obviously to the mother as well. So we lead the way here in Australia, obviously, when we're doing IVF on a woman's own eggs of only putting one embryo in. One of the things that's very difficult when you're overseas is you've got these two or three embryos. You want to you want to maximise your chances. But I always say to women that you know if you've got embryo A and embryo B, and embryo A and embryo B would work. If you put them both together, they're going to work. If you put in embryo A and the environment's right and that embryo's right, it's going to work. Mm-hmm. So you'll end up with one bubba. The unfortunate thing is embryo A is not going to work, and embryo B was going to work. Well, then embryo B will work, of course and then you'll end up with one bubba. But if you put in both and they're always destined to work, you'll end up with twins. So the more and more I've been encouraging my patients who go overseas to only put one embryo in for that reason. But it is very, it's a very difficult decision, as you said, because you don't want to be flying backwards and forwards. The other thing that may have changed, how old are the girls? They're going to be four on the 10th of February. So the other thing that's changed in my practice and probably in Lynn's as well is I'm encouraging all women, particularly before they go overseas to do donor eggs, to do something called an endometrial receptivity assay. That wasn't around when you were doing, when you did the embryos with Zara and Sienna. But you'll recall when you you use the progestogen, Mm -hmm. and as I was saying before, you're putting in the, you're starting the progestogen to time with the development of the embryo so that a day five embryo is put into an environment that's been exposed to progestogen for five days. So I liken that to putting a bun literally in an oven. If you imagine you switch on an oven, which is starting the progestogen, and then you leave it on for five days, and on the sixth day you put the embryo in. The temperature of the oven should be 180 degrees to put the bun in the oven, right? Mm -hmm. But if on that sixth day the temperature is too hot or too cold, the embryo is either going to get burnt or it's not going to cook. So the bun's not going to should say the bun's either going to get burnt or it's not going to cook. The same thing can happen with the lining of the womb. Most women, around 70% of women, will only need five days of progestogen and then you put the embryo in and the endometrium or the lining of the womb is very receptive to the, to the embryo. But in 30% of women, the lining of the womb is either overdone or underdone mm-hmm. and so sometimes the embryo won't work at all. So I always encourage my patients now before they invest in going overseas to Greece or Spain or South Africa, wherever they're going, that we do this endometrial receptivity assay, know exactly what the right timing of the embryo transfer should be to make sure that the window of receptivity is perfect 
so that we can then mimic that cycle again. And we, what we do is we run a, effectively a dummy cycle. Mm-hmm. And rather than put an embryo in, we take a biopsy. So you'll start five days of progestogen. On the sixth day, I take a biopsy from the lining of the womb and I send that off for analysis. And they give me a result that says, look, the endometrium's perfect or no, you need more progesterone or you need less progesterone in order to make the lining of the womb receptive. And then armed with that information, we can replicate that same cycle again on the transfer that needs to occur overseas. Mm -hmm. And there's been a a few patients actually who've gone overseas to Greece where they've done multiple cycles of donor embryos and none of them worked or donor eggs with sperm and none of them worked. And then we've gone and done this endometrial receptivity assay. And in one woman who's around about, I think, 20 weeks pregnant now, with twins because she didn't wow. get she didn't get my memo about only putting one in. <laughs> or let me tell you, they're quite persuasive. They yeah. wanted to put all three in oh me, and I was like, no, no, no. <laughs> but anyway, she needed seven days of progesterone. Okay. So she'd gone and done, I think, four transfers before having done five days, and then putting the embryo on the sixth. We did seven days and putting the embryo on the eighth day wow. for her to get pregnant. So, so one could argue she went all those times with no success. And, you know, effectively was putting an embryo after another. So if you are thinking about doing donor eggs, then I encourage you to find a fertility specialist that does the endometrial receptivity assay So before you head overseas. Mm-hmm. Hey, guys, Nikki here, co-founder at Tiny Hearts Education. At Tiny Hearts, our mission is to bring education to all Australian parents through first aid and birthing courses so you can move through pregnancy, childbirth and parenthood with confidence. To come along to one of our courses, head to tinyheartseducation.com and use the code PODCAST10 to get $10 off any course booking. That's all from me. Let's get back to Joe and today's story. So they were persuasive. They yes. said they wanted to put in three, but you said, no, no, let's only put oh, two. Well, my, I, I actually was like open to it. Yeah. My husband was like, don't you dare. Yeah, and yeah. I was like, okay. But we were happy with the two. We put yeah. the two in. Um, look, the procedure took 15 minutes. Of course. You know, and, it's an and, easy decision. Well, I sat there for a while with a full bladder. Yeah. And I remember um, Dr. Serkos needing to go into an emergency operation. So I was there waiting with a full bladder. And I think, well, I don't know, but during like his procedure or doing the operation, I was able to ring him and yeah. say on his mobile, you need to let me go to the toilet just a little bit because I'm going to burst. So um, he would say to me, go to the toilet, let a little bit out, but then you have to start drinking again. Yeah. So, but anyhow, with all of that, um, he came in, you know, there was a doctor with him that came with this big test tube and, and he said to me, your babies are in here. Yeah. And and Gary and I looked at each other and we were just like, okay. Um, I had a screen there which literally um, showed me exactly where they were placing the eggs. Yep. So Dr. Serkos was like, look at the screen. Can you see this? This is what I'm doing. There's your lining. I'm going to literally put them as close to your lining as I can and Let's hope for the best. So you arrived back in Australia or did you stay in Greece or Cyprus? We were supposed to stay in Greece for two weeks um, of the last leg of the holiday. And Dr. Serkos said to me, Josie, um, you know, today you need to just relax, take it easy tonight. You know, tomorrow you can do maybe some light walking but, you know, nothing too, you know, extravagant. Um, 
and we were like, far out, this has been done and we've staying here for two weeks and Athens is beautiful, but I don't think two weeks in Athens was going to do us justice. So I sort of said to my husband, can we go back to Cyprus? Because, you know, with the family and the beaches and the relaxation, it was just an incredible experience, yeah. And and I think, you know, the procedure helped as well um, with me being so relaxed. Um, So he was like, no way, we're going to have to change flights, we're going to have to pay extra money, we're going to have to do this, we're going to have to do that. And and I knew if I had spoken to my father-in-law, because he would have been delighted for me to go back with his family, he was like, Gary, you have to go back to Cyprus. So, you know, within the next day we were back in Cyprus for um, the last two weeks of our holiday. So when did you you find out you were pregnant in Cyprus then? Yes, so... Um, I can honestly tell you. Um, what did you find? With out? all sick. Well, all the hormones yeah. I was taking, I think it was starting to take a toll on me as yes. well. So I started. Um, I was feeling sick, but to me, it was obviously because I've been pumped with so so many hormones to try and get myself pregnant. Yeah. Um, but I remember. Dr. Serkos saying to me, do not test. There's no need to test now. You do it at 14 days because you, you know, could get a false positive or you're only going to disappoint yourself or what have you. Um, but by seven days into, you know, having this embryo transfer, um, I was sick as a dog. Mm. Like I can't even begin to tell you how sick I was to the point where I rang him on the mobile. I said, you need to help me because... I don't know what I'm feeling and he said, don't test yet, you know, it's probably all your hormones, you know, your emotions as well are probably, you know, going crazy at the moment. Yeah. So I said to my husband, I don't don't care, I'm going to the pharmacy there and I'm just going to test myself. So I went home, um, went to the family member's house and I remember going into the toilet and testing and, you know, I waited my two minutes, which felt like forever, and it was negative. Hmm. And, and I, I, think, was, I, I think it's important to realise that it would have been negative. <laughs> it does take a while for that pregnancy hormone to kick in. But can I tell you, I went and told my husband I was devastated. I thought I'm going to have a nap. I just wanted to ponder and just be with hmm. myself as opposed to having people you know, fussing over me and stuff. Did you go back and look at the test? I went back and looked at the test and there's this line there. <laughs> and I'm like, what? Like, I had no idea what was going on. I know that I was prior to going overseas, I was on Facebook um, and I was on all those, you know, IVF blogs, yeah, blogs. pages and stuff and people saying a faint line is a positive no matter what and things like that and those things ran through my head and then I was like, I'm ringing Dr. Serkos, like Dr. Serkos and he's like, yes, Josie. Um, I did a pregnancy test and he's like, I told you not to and I said, but there's a faint line and and I think, and I, think I am pregnant, you know, and he said, okay, I'm going to explore the options of you going to a clinic there to get a blood test so we can check yeah. where you're at. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I um I got the I got the details, went straight to the um medical center and I got um my blood tested and well in 3 hours they said to me 
Josie, just ring us in three hours and we'll tell you over the phone. And I was like, oh, okay, three hours. Like, so I rang and they said, Josie, you're pregnant. And do you know what? I think you've got multiples in there because your levels are so high. And I was like, multiples in what sense? And they're like, there could be four. And I went, what? <laughs> like I was, <laughs> so yeah, it was, it was crazy, but I was pregnant. So at that point, you I didn't care. Like yeah. if there's four in there, there's four, but I doubt there would have been four, but possibility they could have split. So I want to put in context that so basically when a woman puts in a day five embryo, that's as if you've ovulated and you've actually then had five days. So it's almost like you're day 19 of a 28-day cycle. So if you actually then do a pregnancy test seven days later, it's as if you're day 26. Mm -hmm. Now, the pregnancy tests that you do nowadays, generally speaking, can pick up a pregnancy about two or three days before your expected period, certainly Mm -hmm. those early response Mm -hmm. ones. Of course, if you've got two embryos in there, there's double the amount of HCG, so the test may come back a little bit earlier. And the reason why you're feeling rotten is because obviously there were a couple of embryos in there pumping that hormone around. Whoa. So when did you actually do the first ultrasound scan to check that there was actually two? So as soon as I got back from crazy times, I'm telling you, the pregnancy was crazy. So as soon as I got back from um, Cyprus, we landed in Melbourne. I was still sick as. And at that stage, Dr. Serkos said, go to the pharmacy, get some, I think it was vitamin B, B. Yeah, that B6. should help you. And ginger. Did nothing. And wow. salt bands. And what else did you try? Oh, I tried everything. Did you have the Zofran wafers? Yes. Well, that's what I ended up with at the end um, once I started seeing the obstetrician. But we landed in Melbourne on the Friday and by the Sunday I was at um, the hospital on a drip because yeah, I was so vomiting that badly. So, um the next morning, they said, let's do an ultrasound, make sure everything's okay. Um, did an ultrasound and they were like, you've got two in there. So it was, what was the immediate thought there? Well, I was really stressed. Because of all the vomiting, like you sort of first time you're experiencing all this, to me the vomiting was a negative. Um, and I was scared and I remember waiting to get my ultrasound and my mum said to me, you know, everything will be all right. And I said to her, please let everything be okay. If 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 everything's okay, mum, I'll allow the twins to be Essendon supporters. And <laughs> she just like Who shot you off. For? I broke for Carlton. My husband's an Essendon supporter. She left me in a flash. And you know how they've got those little <laughs> stalls? Can I just say, they- as a Carlton supporter, that's sacrilege. How can you possibly allow your kids to be anything? You birthed those children. They have to be Carlton supporters. Well, they are now. Beautiful. And they're little Carlton members as well. (laughs) I'm glad you reneged on that. My husband's very upset Um, and so is my mum. But as soon as um, she went downstairs and bought them um, little scarfs and things, like I'm like, oh, geez. But anyway, the result came back great. So the, the twins were fine and... So tell us a little bit about your pregnancy then. I've obviously spent a bit of time on the fertility journey, which I think is important for a lot of people out there. But having a twin pregnancy, we know, you know, there can be the challenges, again, financially. We talk about financially, but we also talk emotionally and also medically. Were there any major concerns during the pregnancy? So none to begin with besides me um, probably, yeah, I had, um, it's hyperemesis. Hyperemesis, yeah. I had that 
like from the start. Yeah. Um, I went to see Lynn at I think my nine-week mark yeah. and she performed the ultrasound and she said everything is great, they're developing the way they need to develop. I did tell her I was extremely sick um, and she. I did remember her saying, Josie, it's okay because um, I, be, I started becoming very overwhelmed and I started becoming very anxious. Yes. As I think anyone would, but on top of the journey that it took for me to have them, um, I think my anxiety started kicking in a lot earlier than, you know. Um, so she said to me, a strong, pre- a, a, a strong pregnancy mean, you know, you're vomiting and things like that. It's, it's a strong pregnancy. So, you know, try not to stress. And whether that was her way of trying to ease my anxiety and stuff like that, it, it did help. Yeah. Um, but it didn't stop the vomiting at that stage. Yeah. Um, and then she said to me, you, you know, I, I, um, now need to refer you to an obstetrician Um, and I think because you've got lupus um, and obviously you're going to need, you know, a a bit more of a care package with you because of the lupus, um, I'm going to, you know, insist on you seeing Dr. or Professor Umstad at um, Freemasons, at Francis Perry. So... um, yeah, I booked an appointment to see him and I sort of explained to the girls how I was feeling and obviously the process that, you know, I took to have the babies. And, yeah, again, I ended up on the drip and he came and saw me. Is there any me. special medication that you went on in, in conjunction with obviously just being pregnant because of the lupus? Was there anything they were worried about? They were worried about the lupus flaring up and yeah. because um, lupus is an autoimmune yeah. where my, um, I th- it, yeah, it, it's an overactive immunity that attacks your major organs, they were really concerned more so about my lupus attacking the embryos yeah. because it's foreign. And So was there yeah. any medication you had? No. No aspirin or clexane, really? Yes, I was on clexane and yeah. I was on aspirin, baby aspirin they called it or something like yeah. that. So yeah. nowadays it's important. I think, you know, most obstetricians are quite comfortable delivering twins and, and I think most of us also have done medicine. So we're very comfortable in being able to manage conditions. Um, even myself, I did physician training before I did ONG. So I was a medical registrar and was actually going to become a cardiologist before I did ONG. So. Yeah. A lot of us will have training in what we need to do. Lupus is one of those things. There's something called a lupus anticoagulant that women will have associated with this lupus. And that can potentially, as you rightly said, attack the the pregnancy. So there is some evidence to suggest that starting aspirin and also calcium, uh, sorry, aspirin and clexane will mitigate against the risk of that. Certainly potentially miscarriage and also adverse outcomes with respect to pregnancy. So high blood pressure, small for gestational age baby. And we'll often institute aspirin. Historically, we used to say 100 milligrams or the baby aspirin that you're talking Mm -hmm. about. Nowadays, uh, you know, the recommendation is 150 milligrams of aspirin Mm -hmm. at night uh, rather than in the morning or during the day. And what I sort of say to my patients is grab some Aspro Clear 300 milligram tablets, cut them in half, dissolve them, and then keep the other half in an airtight container. It's important you speak to your your obstetrician and or GP or midwife about whether aspirin is suitable for you. There's certainly a lot. If there's one thing that we as obstetricians could do to decrease the rate of preterm birth in relation to either high blood pressure that occurs in pregnancy, 
and therefore babies needing to be admitted into NICU or special mm-hmm. care, it would be giving every woman aspirin. Mm-hmm. It's very simple, doesn't cost that much, and you can reduce the amount of admissions to emergency and that into the NICU, and that means that the mums and the bubs aren't separated. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you need to be sure that you can definitely take it. Uh, so I tend to use it for women who are a little bit older, have a history of high blood pressure anyway, have had a history of preeclampsia in the past, um, or if they've got something like yourself, SLE or whatever the case might be. So certainly Clexane and aspirin. How, how did the pregnancy go then from there? Oh, it was terrible. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I had a really, really terrible debilitating pregnancy. Just because of the SLE or the nausea or what so, was it was really funny. My SLE and my lupus was 100% controlled. Yeah. So between um, Professor Umstead and Sabina, which is my doctor that deals with my um, lupus. lupus, they put me on a care, you know, they really, really um, structured whatever they needed to do to make sure that I was all good and comfortable. Um, Were you on any prednisolone as well for the SLE? No. No. What does it affect the, the lupus? So for My you. lupus, well, it started off with the skin and hair. That's yeah. how I started realising. But yeah. then um, it's now, it now attacks my joints, joints. and it gives but, me the severe fatigue. But so, not kidneys or anything like that? No. So I'm lucky in that aspect. Whilst okay. I've got SLE, um, it hasn't attacked like brain, kidneys oh, or great. liver or anything like great. that yet. Hopefully never. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um so we're getting towards the latter part of pregnancy. Was there any suggestion that a vaginal birth was on the cards? Or oh, you, hell no. no. Caesar. No. So, yeah, um, Dr. Umstad, again, was very protective yeah. um, around me. And he did say, look, Jace, I'm going to be honest, if after three months your vomiting hasn't subsided, like you're probably not going to stop vomiting. Um, and he was right. I I was sick the whole way through the pregnancy up until even two days after giving birth. God, yeah. So it was it was terrible. I was on the couch all day. I had to stop work. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I yeah, it was it was terrible. I he eventually gave me um the wafer. Yes. And I think look back then four years ago, um, I think I could take up to three a day. Um, it would help minimise things if I needed to go somewhere. But, yeah, within hours I was back at it. So so I, I've got a lot of patients who have hyperemesis and one thing I tell them to do is there's no harm in coming into hospital and getting a tune-up. So yeah. I, in, in fact, I've had women who've had hyperemesis all the way through their pregnancy, same as you, and they'll come in maybe once or twice a week for a drip, fluids, yeah. and the IV version of the Zofran waiver. Yeah. And that... And I think the best thing to do is do that just before you're going down on a spiral downhill. So you're sort of catching it at the crest of a wave and then you're okay for a little bit. You're coming down again, then you get it again and you build yourself back up because mm-hmm. it is, you're right, it's debilitating. Mm-hmm. So did you know what you were going to be – so obviously you knew you were going to have the babies, I presume, around about 37, 38 weeks or was it so earlier? Yeah, we had um, – He everything was going well besides yes. the vomiting. So he he was so happy with ultrasounds, everything. Um and he said to me, I'm going to book you in at 37 weeks. He yeah. said, I'm not even going to ask you if you want a vaginal birth because your body's been through a lot yeah. and I don't want to put it through any more yeah. um, than what it needs to be. Um, so, yeah, we were set to go um, vaginal, um, sorry, Season. C-section, um, I think it was in March yep. of 2016. Yeah. 
And then by, um, I think it was the 30th of December, 2015, day before New Year, um, hubby and I went to get an ultrasound and we um, came here actually to get the ultrasound because they couldn't fit me in um, at Francis Perry. Yeah. And whilst they're looking at the babies, um, I could sort of see a grim face on the um, syn- what's his synologist. Yeah, synologist. And and I was, I'm like, is everything okay? And he's like, oh yeah, everything's fine. I just, I just need to ring your obstetrician. I'm like, okay. And so like, is this Doctor Ricardo, Brazilian bloke? Yes, actually, yes. Um, Lovely. Bloke. So he. Um, Went and called my obstetrician and he came back and he said, look, Josie, you're, you're, there's a bed waiting for you at Francis Perry. You need, you need to go there now. And I'm like, well, what's happening? I, 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 I think I was oblivious there as well, but it was something to do with um, Zara. Um, it, the umbilical cord was resisting of some sort and she was not getting the nutrients or things that she needed to continue growing. How many weeks were you at this point? 27. So we went to the hospital. Mm-hmm. They admitted me in, gave me some cortisone injections because yep. um, they said you're possibly going to be delivering this weekend. So I think we'll talk about that because I think people will be interested into why that occurs. The placenta obviously is the unit that provides an exchange of nutrients and also acts as a liver and a, and a kidney really for the baby. The placenta is very much dependent on having a nice amount of beautiful, juicy blood vessels to allow the blood flow to easily go from baby to to the placenta and then back. If because of an autoimmune condition such as SLE or if, uh, you know, in terms of preeclampsia or sometimes just because, there's no reason, those blood vessels constrict, they become quite tight, then you can imagine the pressure will increase in the umbilical artery or the um, uh, umbilical uh, vessels going from baby to the placenta. So the way I describe it is imagine you've got a hose and you put the tap on a hose and you put the tap on, the water will flow nicely through the tap. If you now go put your finger on the end of the hose, the pressure within the hose will increase. So that's analogous to that placenta increasing in its resistance. And so what happens is the baby has to work really hard to push fluid through the umbilical artery heading towards the placenta. So if that placenta becomes really, really resistant, the blood flow can sometimes even stop during during the phase of when the heart rests, something we call absent endolic-systolic phase. So if you imagine... Yes, you can turn the tap on, you put your finger on the end of the hose, the the water is spraying out faster, but the pressure in the hose is going up. And then you put your finger completely on the end of the hose, then no blood flow goes through. Now, of course, if no blood can come from the baby to the placenta, for the placenta then to act as this kidney and liver function for the baby, the baby can't grow anymore. So when when we're particularly concerned in that regard, because it means that bubbles have got to come out. Mm-hmm. And so giving you steroids was aimed predominantly to help mature the baby's lungs. lungs. Uh, it produces something called surfactant, which allows the airways to open up should the babies be born earlier. Was there a plan put in place to do another ultrasound scan? Yeah. So I got um, my cortisone shot and then they said the next morning they were going to give me um, an ultrasound, which they did, and things looked normal Better. again. 
And it's often the case, and a lot of women, I say this to a lot of women, that if you have the first dose of steroids, we don't know why, it probably changes the dynamics within the yeah. blood flow of the placenta, but they can normalise, for normalise. the blood flows can normalise. So it's a bit like taking your thumb on the end of the hose, mm-hmm. the pressure slowly drops a little bit. So that was good. That was yep, Saturday. All good. Um, and then they said, you're going to stay in for New Year's Eve. Um, that was fun. Did you get a room with three? Yeah, the I did. I did. They did. They gave me a really nice, oh, nice. room and hubby stayed and, and we just like watched the fireworks. And then I started crying because yeah. I was like, you know. <clears throat> but um, then again, the next morning, they had, well, they'd also given me another, well, they were giving me um, cortisone every day at that stage. Every day? Yeah. Not just every second, just two doses? No, they gave me the two and then um, they said to me, everything looks fine, you're able to go home. So so that was on the Monday? Yep. So I ended up going home but their plan was for me to every Wednesday go to the hospital. Have a ultrasound? Well, no, they would listen to the heartbeat. Then from there I would go upstairs and get a cortisone shot. Yeah. From there then I would go downstairs again and get another ultrasound and then whilst they were doing the ultrasound, um, they would send the information to my obstetrician where I was in the waiting room waiting to see him. Um, And I held off for five weeks. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, held off for five weeks um, until, yeah, that 32-week mark where, um, again, there was resistance and I went to see Dr. Umstad and he said, I'm delivering today at 4 o'clock. So, so I had to stay. Obviously, at that point, the the, <clears throat> the blood flows were becoming at a point where yeah. we're no longer. And look, once we get to around 32 weeks with twins, and if there's a concern with one of them, 32-week twins do quite well. And so we know that the benefit of being inside the womb and where they're not getting fed as opposed to being outside the womb where they can be fed up, obviously it's beneficial for yeah. them to be out. So 32 weeks, these little ones are born into the world. Yep. They're a little bit premy. So Zara was the one that was a concern? or was Yes, Zara so was? they took her out first. Uh, well, in that I had to ring hubby, you have to leave work, you have to go get my suitcase. You, again, my mum was with me. <laughs> Thank God. Yeah. Tell she was on the phone with the Essendon Football Club, yeah, get, um, get become, making them become members. Um, and, <laughs> and I remember the guy saying, well, what's their date of birth? She goes, well, they're going to be born in like half an hour. I was like, you are kidding me. Let's Out of all this chaos, you're <laughs> anyhow, God bless her. Um, so yeah, <laughs> Hubby came. He was mortified. Like he was he was white as a ghost. Yeah. Like he just didn't know what to expect. But look, Dr. Umstead, um, he's renowned for delivering within a minute yeah. each child. So yeah. we sort of um uh, we're waiting for that to happen. They prepped me up, did what we had to do. Um, they delivered Zara first, obviously, because she was the one that was in distress. Yeah. Um, I heard her cry and obviously I started to cry, but yeah. I was kind of relieved because I heard something, yeah? Of course. Um, then Sienna was coming out and she was apparently breach from my memory and then when they were pulling her out of me, I heard them go, oh, and then my heart started racing, what's happening, what's going on. She was still in the sack, oh. like they had pulled her out of my yeah. stomach and yeah. she was still in the sack. Oh, and beautiful. I you remember, photos of that? Yes, I do. Um, and I remember the nurse saying, Gary, come and take a photo. Come on, what are you doing? 
<laughs> so he's there taking photos. Um, they delivered her. She cried and obviously the pediatrician was there as well, gave them the look over, put them on me. Yeah. And wow, what an experience. Like So what how about what were their weights? Zara was one point two five kilos. Yeah. And Sienna was one point eight so kilos. Smaller. Yeah. So what was your I mean obviously you were saying, oh wow, what was your overwhelming sense at that point? Well, I, I think it was my girls are okay. Yeah. I knew I was having girls at the twenty-week ultrasound, so you kind—I kind of bonded with them, um, and yeah, as you do. And once they were placed, did on, you already know their names? Yes, I sure any, did. Any any specific? Yep. Why why Zara and Sienna? Zara, I've always loved, um, yeah. and it, it's just was non-negotiable. I had to have a Zara regardless. Um, with Sienna, I actually wanted to name her Sierra, oh. you know, and my husband was like, no, people will call her Sarah. And I was like, they'll see the I. But anyway, he said, I like Sienna, and we named her Sienna. Right. So, um, and I knew Zara was the smaller one. Smaller. Yeah. So an overwhelming sense of joy, no doubt, for both of you. Uh, being a little bit small, did they end up going to the nursery? Well, they went to special care yeah. um, and I was so relieved. Like they didn't have to go into the special care nursery because they weren't breathing right or anything like that. It was just purely because they were small. Small and they needed to be fed. Yeah. So it's so, important to know that babies less than 30, generally speaking, less than 36, sometimes less than 37 weeks, they may not have the sucking reflex. So they actually need to have a tube yeah. that goes down into their, from their nose into their stomach in order to feed them. So I presume they were in special care purely for that purpose initially. Yeah, yeah. And was did they have a pretty uneventful course? Easy going. So they, it, it was it was terrible. Like walking in there, you, you see a lot of, babies obviously that have other problems yeah. and and it's really sad and it's really overwhelming and then there's me who's walked in and, and my two are okay yeah. um but it, it was probably one of the scariest daunting times of my life um did you bond with any other family members I did. families there yep. Other? yep and until today we're still you know good friends um with with that you sort of um I became very anxious at that yeah. point. So because I was told you can go home now yeah. after, you know, six days but the babies are staying here, Yeah. oh, geez, it was terrible. I think I worked myself up to a point where my blood pressure went extremely high and they had to keep me in an extra night. So, yes, you had high blood pressure. Yeah, after being told that I was going home, which I knew that I had to go home and the girls were going to stay but then – being told that and it becoming a reality, it just uh, it didn't sit well with me. How long were the girls in the special care for? Six weeks. All right, so they got to a corrected age of around 38. Yep. So it's yep. pretty good. Good weight. Um, and and did you go in daily? Yeah, so you know, that's the thing. So home? Yeah, so I pretty much had to recover from this caesarean straight away because I was at home still waking up every four hours to pump milk yeah. to bring it to the girls um, on a daily basis. So I, for the first week I didn't drive. I would get picked up like at about 7 in the morning, um, go there 
and I'd spend the whole day there until hubby came and we'd stay there till about six, seven o'clock at night and then go home. Um, But obviously anxiety kicked in again. So I would literally be ringing the nursery every every time I was pumping just to see are the girls okay? Um, uh, Have they been weighed? Have they put on weight? Um, Yeah, so and they were very, very accommodating in the sense, you know, if you wake up at three in the morning and you want to know how your babies are, you just ring us. We're here to answer your questions. Just wondering if there's any value in them having a nanny cam. (laughs) <laughs> so you could, and that. you could have a look that, and see. That would be a good idea. Isn't that a good idea? Yeah. I'll just come up with that now. Yeah. Um, so everything went uncomplicated. You get to 38 weeks, you take your bubbers home. How did that feel? Well, it was an incredible feeling. Yeah. Um, Hubby took some time off work at that time as well so he could stay with me. Yeah. Um, so for the first two weeks, I think we were – Literally going crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Did you have a lot of support? Because twins are hard, aren't they? Let's be Very honest. hard. It, it, I'm telling you now, as a twin mum, and, yeah, it, it's probably the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. When you look back, obviously you've got two beautiful daughters, but when you look back, if you could have had Zara and Sienna nine or ten months apart, what would you have done now? Looking back, geez, I'm blessed and I love my girls to death but I probably would have put one embryo in and then probably, probably gone yeah. back maybe a year or, or so yeah. later to do it again. They, yeah. they still would have been twins just separated yeah. by a couple Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. But, um, yeah, it was crazy and chaotic. We we were new to it. Yeah. We, um, we got a lot of information and um, the girls in the special care nursery, we were lucky. They, they had already put the girls in a routine. Yes. So... A lot of my patients say that when yeah. their babies are in the special care. Yeah. So we literally didn't have any issues um, besides, you know, the fatigue side of things where you're waking up every four hours to feed. The, the one thing they did sort of try to get me to do was breastfeed. Yes. Um, and I, I just knew that I wouldn't be able to continue doing that at home. Yeah. So I... As we're getting to, you know, the fifth or fourth or fifth week um, of being in special care, I sort of said to them, can we start, um, you know, giving formula as well through the bottle? And they were happy with that. So, yeah, so they came home. We were in a routine. Um, I, they, they used to feed the girls separately, so one first and then the other. In hindsight, that's great, but when you take them home and they're both screaming at the same time and and you don't know what to do, you're just, okay, let's feed you together. Yeah. And that's what I did. Like I literally fed them together. Bathe they do everything together. together. Their baths, their... Um, What's their relationship like? Okay, well, now that they're at that age... Because they're um, at their age because my toy, your toy, no, yeah, no, well, no. I think we did the crazy thing of everything that one got, the other got as yeah. well. So that was good. But now they're at the point where you have to name, every, you put names on everything. Yeah. Even though they're the same and they want the same, you have to put names on everything. Um, their relationship is crazy by day. Yeah. Um, they fight. Yeah. 
Zara being the shorter one because she's she's five kilos smaller right. than Sienna. So she stayed a little tiny tot. You would think she would be the one that's um, – No, she's the one that's had to fight her life. And like, she does that right now. Like yeah. she's happy to pull her sister's hair. She yeah. She's just tough. She's really, really tough. Yeah. Um, but by night they can't sleep without each other. Oh, really? They sleep I, in the same bed? Yep. Had to, got them single beds, refused to sleep. Got them. Um, Do they cuddle one another? They touch each other. They oh have God. to have something touching. Um, That's amazing. And you'll you wouldn't believe this, but I've got photos of it, and I'm forever posting them on Instagram. The way they were in my stomach, um, they were always one on top of the other. Yeah. So they were never really side by side. They're always one on top of each other, and that's how they sleep in so bed. They switch around. In they bed. switch around, and one is on top, and the other is on the bottom. And that's how they sleep till today. <laughs> so um, <laughs> you have to buy them a double bed. They've got a king size bed. Oh, they're lucky. Yeah, they got a king size bed. So, I mean, obviously they're doing quite well. Amazing. Heading off to school next year. No, I've kept them back. Yeah, um, kept them back for another year. Yeah. So they started three year old kinder this year. Yeah. And I didn't do it because I thought they wouldn't be able to do it academically. It was more about um, I wanted them to be a bit more mature. Yeah. Um, and I some, didn't want them to be the youngest in the class yeah. and, you know, things like that. So, yeah. Well, there's something to be said about that. I, I, you're talking about football before. I was, <laughs> um, for a short while, I was a mentor for the Carlton Football Club for the, the men's team. Yeah. I now am fortunately involved as a, uh, one of the club doctors for the AFLW team. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's good fun. Good stuff. Uh, but anyway, so I was a mentor for the for the Carlton football team and we actually had a guy come out from the NFL from, from America who talked about children born, you know, NFL players and, and when they were born in the year. And it's interesting that kids, and if you related it to Australians, kids who perform better academically and also from a football perspective most of them are born January, February, March of the year, only if they were in the class that the class of where they were one of the eldest rather than the youngest. Right. So there's this thing that, you know, a lot of people get worried about potentially holding their, their kids back. But in actual fact, if they're in that, if they go into a class where they are a little bit more mature, they tend to take on those leadership roles. From that's exactly goal. that's exactly what my point was. I did so yeah. much research, yeah. and um, it was about their maturity, and they were very um, codependent on me. Yeah. So, until today, everything's about mum. Like they're attached to my hip. They're like the little mini. What about mini Gary? Me. Is he going to go? When he comes home from well, it's work, because he breaks for Essendon. Yeah, I mean, that, probably. Let's, let's be honest. Yeah. Um, well, you know, they'll jump on him when he comes home from work. They miss their dad, blah blah. Yeah. But um, everything ultimately is me. Like yeah. they're just my little mini me's. So, yeah. So, I mean, obviously, you had a you know, had a, a wonderful experience in terms of the fertility process first time round. Of course, obviously, the pregnancy somewhat scary. I imagine, particularly in those. Those times around the New Year, New Year's Eve break, um, you know, not unexpected in terms of twins, partly because of not only what was going on with your SLE, but also in terms of it being a twin pregnancy. But, you know, you've got two beautiful daughters to show for it. In terms of, you know, if, if a woman's out there now listening to this podcast and, and she's considering egg freezing, is there any advice that you'd want to give her? The, the advice that I would give, which um, I have given, is if you want to be a mum, 
like do whatever it takes, start exploring these things sooner rather than later. Um, I, I, I do know that if I had explored these things prior to being 36, I probably wouldn't have had to have gone down that donor egg path. But, um, yeah, just freeze your eggs, do whatever you want to do, whatever you need to do in order to, you know, be able to fall pregnant later on if you are planning on, Become, you know, becoming pregnant later on in life. It, it's interesting you say that. I have a lot of women who come and see me and, and, you know, they're wanting to freeze their eggs and they might be, say, 33. And I say to them, what do you want to do? Do you want to freeze your eggs because you're waiting for Mr. Wright or Mrs. Wright? Or is it because you actually want to be a mum? And some women come and say, no, actually, I want to be a mum. And so we shift our discussion about freezing eggs to actually utilising donor sperm for pregnancy. Mm-hmm. The flip side to that is I say to women, you know, a lot of people come to me for fertility or just for preconception advice and, I, and they say, well, when should we get pregnant? And I, I always say that the best time to become pregnant is when you're physically, financially, socially, emotionally and medically ready to do so. Yeah. But none of those five things are going to be ticked. So, you know, you might not get the house with three bedrooms and two cars and, you know, one's an Audi and one's a BMW. Mm-hmm. So there's got to be an element of compromise. Yeah. And that element of compromise may happen because in your career, you might have to sacrifice the career, unfortunately, as for women, but also blokes. Like there's no reason why a bloke can't be home and looking mm. after the children. Um, but also, you know, you need to make sure you're medically fit. And, I, and the other thing I also encourage women to do is, You know, there's a lot of obstetricians out there and a lot of fertility specialists out there. Fortunately, now with the advent of um, social media, you can get a bit of a gauge for them. But there's nothing really like going to see a person. And I reckon, you know, having a chat and seeing someone, particularly obstetricians, have a bit of chat to make sure you feel that there's an element of rapport and understanding about what's going to happen in the process is particularly, I reckon, before you even become pregnant. Yeah. uh, It's a good idea to get a bit of preconception advice from them. If people want to find out a little bit about more about your journey, obviously we've spent, I think, nearly over an hour talking about all this sort of stuff, but if anyone wants to sort of uh, follow your journey for the future but also got questions that they want to ask, is there any way that they can reach you? Sure. So at, at this point I've started a personal blog um, and it's called Life, Wife and Twins. So you can read my fertility journey and other blog entries about you know, my life, um, being a wife and also having twins slash being a parent um, and my Instagram account. A lot of people um, tend to, now that I've put the fertility journey out there, um, I get a lot of people sending me messages, you know, can you help me and can you tell me what, you know, what I need to do and things like that. And look, I've got every, um, I, I've got a lot of faith in Dr. Serkos and uh, between him and I, um, we chat quite often and I will often ring him or email him and say, I've got someone that's interested. And then in in that as well, like I also tell whoever I'm speaking to, like, you know, Dr. Joe Segroy is probably the best person obstetrician-wise um, to go to. So I think... Um, yeah, if anyone needs to contact me or wants to, you can certainly email me from the blog website or um, on Instagram, Life, cool. Wife and Twins. Yeah, just DM me. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story with us, Josie. No and problem. I hope 
everyone out there found it really enjoyable and valuable. I certainly yeah. did. And I think it, you know, it, it touches on a couple of couple of things, you know, the emotional journey to becoming a mother and the complexity sometimes that some yeah. people face in order to, to become a mother. Uh, and, you know, obviously that pregnancy in itself has its trials and tribulations. And uh, whilst you get when you obviously did got exceptionally good care during your mm. pregnancy. Yeah. Um, at, the, at the end of the day, you've got two beautiful daughters to show for it, so you yeah. should be quite proud. I am. Um, you can listen to new episodes of the Bump Birth and Beyond podcast each fortnight on Thursday evenings. And make sure you keep up to date with me and be the first to hear about new episodes by following me at uh, Dr. Joseph Scroy through either Instagram or Facebook. And, of course, Tiny Hearts Education. And you can download their app from the App Store and also follow them on Instagram and Facebook. Bye for now, and we'll see you all in another, or we'll speak to you all, or you'll be listening to us all in another two weeks. 